Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The EPA finds fault with the State Department's environmental assessment of the Keystone XL pipeline, and that might affect final project approval. It's a political decision. It's a symbolic decision. It's an economic decision. And the Environmental Protection Agency's letter, I think, is going to provide good legal and good political arguments about why the pipeline decision ought to be no. Also, where folks find inspiration to pick a date for the official ice melt at Joe's Pond in Vermont. It's birthdays, anniversaries, lucky numbers. Sometimes we have the dowsers come in and they'll douse with a pendulum over a calendar. You know, it's just one of those things, whatever floats their boat. And there's a sweet prize if they win. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Some say the proposed Keystone XL pipeline to bring tar sands crude from Canada would unleash climate disaster. Others claim it would provide jobs and energy security. The U.S. State Department has released a draft environmental impact statement that favors the project, but now the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is calling the State Department analysis insufficient, saying it downplays the pipeline's likely hazards. UCLA law professor Ann Carlson says the EPA challenges the State Department on a number of key points. They really have three objections, but I would say that one is the key objection and really, really important, and that is In the draft environmental impact statement, the State Department concluded that the greenhouse gas emissions impact of building the pipeline would not be significant. And that's not because the extraction of the tar sands that would then be exported through the United States through the pipeline aren't extremely greenhouse gas intensive. They are. In fact, they're much more intensive than traditional crude oil. The conclusion of the State Department is that If we don't build the pipeline, the oil is going to get used anyway, and it will be either shipped by train or shipped through another pipeline, perhaps, that goes to British Columbia and then is shipped to China. And so their conclusion is, no matter what we do, those emissions are going to be emitted. The Environmental Protection Agency is not so sure about that, in large part because there are estimates that suggest that if you don't have the pipeline, the transportation costs of shipping the oil, probably by rail, are sufficiently higher or could be sufficiently higher that it might make the oil too expensive to actually extract in the first place. And what are the other two things that the EPA objected to? The second objection is that the possibility of a spill as a result of the building of the pipeline could result in the release of the kind of oil that's being shipped that's particularly environmentally damaging and that more analysis should, and attention should be paid to try to minimize those risks. The third problem that the EPA identifies is that the State Department hasn't adequately addressed an alternative route that would avoid going over some of the um, land in Nebraska that is particularly sensitive and has an important aquifer underneath. So how important is the EPA's opinion here? How much of an impact can they have on this decision? 
I think the Environmental Protection Agency's opinion is extremely important for two reasons. The most important reason is that the leader of environmental issues in the Obama administration is now saying that the conclusion of the draft environmental impact statement from the State Department is inadequate in the most important respect, and that is their conclusion that the pipeline would not have a significant effect on greenhouse gas emissions is either wrong or ignoring important information. So as a political matter, I think it's extremely important. It's also important legally because the State Department is going to have to change its environmental impact statement. Remember, this is a draft to address the concerns of the Environmental Protection Agency, or it's going to face a lawsuit suggesting that the environmental impact statement is inadequate with very good support from the Environmental Protection Agency agreeing with that assessment. So with all these questions uh, being raised, then what do you think the timeline is on the Keystone XL pipeline decision? Well, I'm not certain that this EPA letter significantly slows down the decision-making process because I suspect, although I don't know for certain, that the State Department already has some of this information at its fingertips. The question is now incorporating it into the final impact statement. So I think the the much more important question is actually not on timing, it's on substance. What is the State Department going to do in response to these criticisms from the Environmental Protection Agency? Will it change the department's bottom line conclusion that building of the pipeline does not have a significant environmental impact? The Keystone debate is uh, is really heating up. On Earth Day, for example, critics uh, gathered over a million comments uh, opposing uh, the project. Where do you think this thing might wind up? Well, I think at the end of the day, this really is a political decision. President Obama made clear in his State of the Union that he wanted to do something as much as he could on climate change to try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If he wants to show the world that he's serious about that, I'm not sure that approving a pipeline that has the potential, at least, to significantly increase greenhouse gas emissions is the symbol he wants to send the rest of the world. It's a political decision. It's a symbolic decision. It's an economic decision. And the Environmental Protection Agency's letter, I think, is going to provide good legal and good political arguments about why the pipeline decision ought to be no. Law Professor Ann Carlson is director of the Emmett Center on Climate Change and the Environment at UCLA. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. TransCanada's pipeline would cross thousands of parcels of private land. So the company has sent agents to win permission from landowners. One land agent in rural Nebraska has attracted controversy because Myron Stafford is also a part-time Baptist preacher. And some folks aren't sure about a preacher proselytizing for a pipeline. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom got one of them on the phone. My name is Terry Van Housen, and I'm a farmer from Nebraska. My main um, operation is feeding cattle. I feed 10,000 head. I've uh, been farming for 45 years. Can you tell me about your experience with Myron Stafford? I understand he came out there to um, to talk to you about Keystone. Myron uh, called me one day and wanted to set up a meeting about running a uh, pipeline across my land. So I met with him. We went back into the break room so it wasn't so noisy. So we started talking about what they wanted to do to my land. We started talking about that, then uh, the conversation kind of got switched into, he said that he was a Baptist preacher for three and a half years up at Polk, a little town five miles from my uh, office. Then he got to going on that he married some people up there, and he buried some of my friends, 
and uh, he thought that, you know, God sent him there because of uh, it's such a nice area. And to me, I felt like that he was just trying to gain my trust to get me to sign the agreement through TransCanada to bury that pipeline across my land. So right then and there, that kind of threw a red flag up for me. So he came to you as an employee of Keystone, but he's also a preacher in the local church. What did you think of his two roles? I thought it was a little odd that he was bringing so much of... uh, got into our business, because in the conversation, he said that he would never bring work into a house of God, but he sure brought God into my house of work. How did you resolve that conversation with him? When the end of the first meeting, you know, I had six questions for him uh, that he could not answer. So he answered them the second meeting, plus I told him on the first meeting that you should be able to freshen this price up a little bit. You know, a lifetime easement for Keystone XL and only one-time payment for me. So uh, the second meeting come around, he answered the six questions, he sweetened up the pot a little bit, there was a little more money added, and I left it with him that I will think about it and uh, then we'll talk about it again. And he reminded me that after the 22nd, that his offer goes off the board. In other words, you better make up your mind, get on board, else you're not, you're going to end up with nothing. That didn't really trick my trigger either. Can I ask you, how, how sweet was that pot? Yeah, he started, it's a 50-foot swath through my field, 6-foot deep, and for a lifetime easement, it was like $27,000. And he sweetened it up to $30,000. You know, I got to thinking about that. I said, they're going to make millions of dollars. There's over $50 million worth of uh, crude oil going through that every day. And he's offering me a measly $30,000 for a lifetime easement. You know, I I, I don't want it anyway. I don't know if he pressures it up a lot more. I still don't want it because I found all all the danger of that pipeline, what it could do to our nice, clean water. Before you met Mr. Stafford, did you have any opinions about the Keystone Pipeline? How familiar were you with it? I was very not familiar. And then Valentine's Day, me and some friends were going out, and uh, one of my friends, she was talking about the pipeline. And I said, yeah, that's going across my land. And she says, oh, gosh, haven't you heard the whole story about that? And I said, no. And I thought maybe it was a good thing. And she said, oh, no, you should be talking to some people and doing some research. So that's when I got on top of things, and I couldn't find anything good about it. It's all bad. Do you have any sense of um, the feelings of your neighbors and your friends? What do, what do they think of this? Their concerns are, you know, our nice clean water, what happens if there's a break in the pipe. The Okalala Aquifer is right underneath of us. It's the cleanest water in the world, and we're like on top of an ocean of it. And if that crude gets down into our water system, it could ruin their drinking water, their bathing water, my water for irrigation to raise the corn, plus my cattle wouldn't be able to drink that water. It's toxic. It would put me out of business. That's Farmer Terry Van Housen speaking with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. 
Native Nebraskan Ted Genoways is an editor-at-large for the magazine On Earth, published by the NRDC. We asked Ted to describe Polk, the town where Myron Stafford preached at the local Baptist church. Polk is a very small town. It's a town of about 300 people that is entirely supported by agriculture. And really the only reason that people come to town is to have dinner at the diner, to get supplies at the hardware store, or to come in to the church on Sunday. When Myron Stafford came into Polk the first time as a land agent, he very quickly became a part of the church life there. He became one of the deacons, and when the sitting minister retired, he was asked to fill in and ended up being the fill-in minister for three and a half years. And in that time, he not only performed weddings and funerals, but he also managed to secure land agreements from a significant number of the congregants at the church. Ted, in your article in in On Earth, you write that if landowners don't go for the soft sell from the local preacher, that uh, Keystone will send other representatives that, well, they can sometimes threaten people. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, there's at least one landowner that I've spoken to who said that they not only received letters, but phone calls that came in daily and then multiple times a day, and eventually were threatening to use eminent domain in order to condemn the property, and said, if we have to go through that process, you'll have no say in where the pipeline is eventually sited when it crosses your land. And as it stands, It may be all the way to the western edge of your property and far away from your home and your front step. But if we have to go through all of this, we may decide that we're going to run the pipe right where your house is now. And we'll demolish your house and we'll run the pipe through your living room. I think that a lot of landowners feel that sort of threat crosses a line. That it's not at that point a business negotiation, but it is intimidation. What I can say is that I hear enough stories from landowners who I've approached cold and people who have not come to me, but people I've just gone up and knocked on their door and they've told me the same stories. I think that there's no question that this sort of thing is going on with the land agents. Now, as I understand it, the governor of Nebraska has given the green light to TransCanada to use eminent domain to build the pipeline. Please tell me about that and how a governor could have that power. Ordinarily, the power of eminent domain would be determined by the Public Service Commission. In this particular case, the legislature, as part of a special session, passed a law that specifically removed that power from the PSC and put it in the hands of Governor Dave Heineman, someone who everyone understood was a supporter of TransCanada and of the project. So with that in hand, the letters that have been going out from TransCanada now always start by reminding landowners that they have received the power of eminent domain from the governor and they will use it if they don't get cooperation. So let me see if I have this right. So a private foreign corporation is being given the power to take people's land against their will to make money. That's right. And under the guise of it being for the public good. And in general, what kind of response are you seeing from people there in Nebraska about the proposed pipeline now? People here, I think, have really gotten their hackles up and have said, you know, if this project requires all of this strong arming in order to go through, there must be something wrong with it. 
Ted Genoese is editor-at-large for On Earth magazine. Thank you so much for taking this time. Thanks again for having me. Repeated attempts to reach Myron Stafford were unsuccessful. TransCanada says it sees no conflict in this arrangement. A promising breakthrough in energy storage is just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Just three years ago, on April 20th, a deepwater BP oil well in the Gulf of Mexico burst open, spewing over 200 million gallons of crude into the Gulf, fouling beaches, fishing grounds, and the seabed. Now science is trying to understand exactly what effects a spill like this has on the marine ecosystem. One collaboration of chemists, engineers, and biologists at the University of South Florida is called Sea Image, which stands for the Center for the Integrated Modeling and Analysis of the Gulf Ecosystem. Since August of 2012, the Sea Image team has been collecting samples in the Gulf of Mexico, and reporter David Lavin went along with them. His story comes to us from Mind Open Media. It's not doing what it needs to do in order to put the economy back on track uh, and creating jobs. It's 9 a.m., and David Hollander is driving me around St. Petersburg, Florida, listening to the morning news. Hollander is a marine chemist at the University of South Florida, and we're running some last-minute errands. In a few hours, we're shipping out for an eight-day research cruise in the Gulf of Mexico. But first, we've got an important stop to make, the wig store. <laughs> we're picking up styrofoam heads for research, believe it or not. <laughs> Good luck to you. Thank you very Happy. much. I appreciate it. Take care. All right, thanks again. This is something of a tradition. On the research cruise, Hollander and his students will attach the heads to instruments they'll lower down to the ocean floor. And the heads, because of the pressure, shrink to about a third the size. And if you paint them nicely, it turns out to be quite a memento. The plan is for these heads and the instruments to descend to the source of the Deepwater Horizon spill at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Back in April 2010, a floating rig owned by BP exploded. It sank a mile down to the bottom, leaving a broken wellhead on the seafloor about 40 miles off the Mississippi Delta. For three straight months, oil sprayed up from the wellhead to the surface, and as it rose, vast plumes of toxic chemicals and oil droplets broke off, staying suspended in the seawater at different depths. They drifted around the Gulf like toxic clouds. This is not a black layer in the ocean. It, it doesn't even look like vinaigrette when you bring it up. Uh, it looks like crystal clear water. And the reason is is because they were such fine droplets that you couldn't see them. The underwater plumes eventually floated into the continental slope. That's where the ocean floor drops out dramatically. It falls from a few hundred feet deep to a few thousand. When the plumes hit the slope, they left a smear of oily residue. Hollander and his team are using this cruise to visit those oil-soaked areas. Their mission? collect both sediment and fish to measure the plume's impact on the Gulf ecosystem, from huge whales to tiny single-celled animals. This project's part of a larger research effort Hollander helped start at USF. He's organized scientists from around the world to study the aftermath of the spill. The group calls themselves Sea Image, and this cruise is the first part of their collaboration. For the next eight days, our home base will be here on the Weatherbird 2, a 115-foot research vessel. Welcome aboard. Glad to finally have everybody on board. Uh, sounded like probably a 4 a.m. start or 5 a.m. start. We That's Matt White, the ship's captain. We're about to set sail for an area of the seafloor called the DeSoto Canyon, about 60 miles southwest of the Florida Panhandle. It's one of the places where the oil plumes bumped into the continental slope. By midnight, we're at our first stop. Hollander's team lowers a device called a multicorer into the water. 
It's a metal frame about 10 feet tall. The, the multicore literally looks like a giant spider or a giant lunar lander. Patrick Schwing is a postdoc in Hollander's lab. He's watching the multicore disappear under the waves. When it hits bottom, eight plastic tubes inside it will grab mud from the seafloor. And at that point, we start pulling it back up. Those coring samples are crucial for understanding how the spill moved around the Gulf. They'll help the team predict what happens to the oil after a deepwater blowout and how long it'll last in the water. But the life of the oil is only half the picture. To understand its impact on the ecosystem, the team needs to know how fish and other animals are faring. Look at that sunrise. That's sharp. The next day, at 6 in the morning, Steve Morowski stands on deck, holding laundry baskets full of bait. It's a combination of squid and Boston mackerel. Morowski is a biological oceanographer at USF, and he's running this research cruise along with Hollander. He's setting up for a long day of fishing. His team is using a winch the size of a 50-gallon drum to let out five miles of metal cable. Strung out along the cable are 500 baited hooks. It's a technique called longlining. As the cable spools out, it settles across the bottom, attracting fish that live near the oily sediments. This is a unique opportunity to see what's going on with the fishes in the really deep water. We know that there's oil on the bottom. What we're trying to see is if that oil is having any food chain effects. Morowski thinks the toxic chemicals may have been absorbed by tiny animals that live in the sediments, like clams, snails, and worms, which all get eaten by fish. So if there's any oil lower down in the food chain, it might end up in the fish. And if it does, Morowski wants to know. So he's taking samples from all the species he catches on his long line. So what we're going to do is look at the bile, the blood, the liver, the muscle, and then some of the organs of, this, of the fish. So that should tell us, number one, is there uh, active oil in the environment? And number two, is it being uptaken by these fish, some of which are of commercial importance? One by one, fish come off the long line and flop onto the deck. Red snapper, dogfish, eels, grouper, tuna. This part of the research is grueling. Morowski and his students work in 100-degree heat, cutting out fish guts so they can test them for chemicals from the oil. When they're done with that, they reach for the bone saw. Liz Herder, one of Morowski's students, just split open the head of a yellow-edged grouper. She uses tweezers to pull out delicate bones from its inner ears. They look like tiny oyster shells. These are um, otoliths, they're like an ear stone, and Steve likes to call it the flight recorder. That's because a new layer of bone forms around an otolith every year. They're laid down like the rings of a tree. And by analyzing these layers, you can track the health of the fish over time. If they came into contact with any chemicals, there'll be a chemical marker. Um, so they're a really neat way to determine what's been happening in the life of the fish. Morowski's team wants to use these samples to create a big picture view of fish and ecosystem health in the Gulf. Even today, some fish are still in bad shape, like the 50-pound red snapper Morowski's holding. It's got a skin lesion. It's also got a bad eye. See his eye? His eye's gone. So. This is the kind of fish we want to investigate for whether it has any, uh, any relationship to oil or not. Sick fish like this one don't surprise Morowski. He thinks their bad health is connected to what's going on in the sediments, and Hollander just found some evidence to back that up. At a work table crammed into a corner of the deck, Hollander points to one of the cores his team pulled up the night before. It's a clear plastic tube, about two feet long and six inches wide. It's full of gray mud, where tiny worms, snails, and clams have burrowed, mixing it all up. But a few inches from the top, that uniform gray turns suddenly into brown. And that, he says, means trouble. 
what this really represents is where the subsurface plumes actually touched the sediment surface. When the plumes hit the sea floor, they wiped out the tiny creatures that usually mix up the sediment. So after the spill, all that churning activity ground to a halt. If there was organisms mixing this, you wouldn't find these distinct layers. So those organisms are gone. In some parts of the Gulf, they still haven't come back. And since some fish live in and near the sediments, Hollander thinks the chemical plumes probably affected them too, causing the liver problems and skin lesions Morawski's been seeing. But it's hard to know for sure. Figuring out what the toxins may have done to the fish is a challenge, and it's tough to pinpoint which chemicals could be the culprits. You know, you have to be able to trace the oil from its origin through the water column onto the sediments, and then as that material degrades, how do you follow it? Not that easy. The Sea Image team still has a long way to go. Over the next three years, they're planning a few more research cruises that'll take them back into the Gulf. And next time, Hollander promises to do something with those styrofoam heads, which we painted on board this cruise. He plans to lower them to the seafloor at the exact site of the Deepwater Horizon spill. In a way, he says, he'll give those inanimate heads a look at what's going on down there, just like he and his students are trying to do from the surface. For Living on Earth, I'm David Levin in Tampa, Florida. David's story comes to us from Mind Open Media. To learn more, head to our website, loe.org. Batteries. They are a convenient but expensive way to store electricity. There is another path to storing electricity that physics has known about for centuries, also expensive and even less convenient. It's called electrolysis, and that happens when a current is passed through water and separates the H2O into its two elements of hydrogen and oxygen. The energy that was in the electricity is released when the hydrogen is burned or oxidized to make water again. Trouble is, this process needs very expensive catalysts to work. Well, now a team of Canadian scientists may have solved the problem of cost, and that could revolutionize the storage of renewable energy. Curtis Berlinguet, a professor of chemistry at the University of Calgary, explains. Well, a fundamental problem with electricity generated by renewable sources such as sunlight and wind is the fact that there's no real good way of storing that energy. If you think of a solar module that's been installed on the roof of your home, and you go to work during the day when the sun is shining, well, that electricity that's being generated is not doing you a lot of good. It's the same thing with wind turbines that are producing electricity at 2 o'clock in the morning when there's no demand. And so ideally what you want to do is have a storage mechanism that can store that electricity when it can't be used at that particular point in time and then bring it back to the grid when there is high demand. And that's the real opportunity with storage. And right now what's done is that people with solar power or, or wind turbines put it to the grid as they get it, whether or not the grid particularly wants it. Exactly. So explain to us how you've solved this energy uh, storage problem. So we've been working on catalysts to make the more efficient transformation of water into hydrogen fuels using that electricity provided by those wind turbines and solar modules 
when you do produce that hydrogen, it can then be stored in a tank for as long as you want. And when you need that electricity back, you can then convert that hydrogen, mix it with oxygen, and generate electricity that way. Or you can just plug that hydrogen right into your furnace and heat your home directly with the hydrogen that's been produced. Now, the big deal in these metal compounds that you're using for these chemical reactions, I gather, is uh, their makeup. Can you explain to me what's different about what people, from what people have done in the past? Well, commercial electrolyzers in operation today rely on crystalline catalytic materials. We've been developing some amorphous materials. And amorphous is a fancy word for shapeless, all mixed up. Exactly. So if you think about a crystal material like lasagna, where you have an ordered layered structure, if you throw that sauce on that lasagna, the sauce will only be able to interact with the top layer. Amorphous materials are much more randomly oriented, much like spaghetti noodles. And so when you pour sauce on that spaghetti, they can better interact with all of the different spaghetti noodles. And this is the real advantage of coming up with amorphous materials. In our case, water can now come in and interact with all those different metals and to make a much more efficient process. So you found that having them all disordered really helps. And then, as I understand from your paper, you found something else that needs to be done to make this more efficient. And what's that? Our big breakthrough is that we've been able to introduce multiple different metals into these amorphous materials. If you think of cooking with a single spice, you get a nice tasty dish, but if you have the right combination of multiple different spices, you can make the dish a truly amazing experience. And our finding is that now we're able to make, in a reproducible way, mixed metal oxide films, and metals can then act cooperatively to better mediate this transformation of water into hydrogen fuels. So what kind of metals are we talking about here? We're taking iron oxide, which is rust, and just doping it with cobalt and nickel. These are earth-abundant metals, and they're much cheaper than what is being used today. And we find that they give us the efficiency that is comparable or even better than the rare and expensive metals that are used, like iridium and ruthenium. If we're able to match the performance of iridium, which costs a thousand times more than iron, then it's certainly a big discovery for the field. Give me some numbers, Curtis. How much more efficient are these catalyzers compared to what people use today? Well, the ones in our original paper just show comparable performance to metals that cost a thousand times more than the materials that we're using. But we have developed some catalysts in our labs that are about 20% more efficient than what's being used today. We have a producer in our office who's very proud of her solar array at her house, and she makes electricity. Of course, she just gives it to the grid right now. With your technology, she'd be able to store that at home and, uh, and use it at will? That's right. So my utopian view here is for her home not to be connected to the grid in any way. So that way, every home in suburban America and Canada, you never have to worry about tying them up to natural gas pipelines or electrical grids. So when shall we see these electrolyzers that use your process on the market? Well, we're currently in the testing phase on a large-scale electrolyzer with a current player on the market. So these could be out there as early as 2014. The smaller-scale units are projected to come out hopefully in, in 2015. Oh, and by the way, is there a name or a nickname for this process or the company that you're forming? We formed a company called Firewater Fuel, coming to a home near you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, out of the laboratory and into business, it sounds like, Professor. 
yes, I, the reason I went into academia is to stay away from the real world, but here I am. <laughs> Curtis Berlinguet is an associate professor of chemistry at the University of Calgary. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Spring. There's nothing like its rains to bring the California desert back to life. Here's Michael Stein with today's bird note. A light April rain falls in the Anza Borrego Desert in southeast California. Cacti and wildflowers glisten with raindrops, and birds begin to sing. The sweet jumbled notes of a house finch rise above the sound of the rain. A Buick's wren buzzes, then breaks into exuberant song. A cactus wren joins the chorus, standing atop a barrel cactus, calling gruffly. A Costa's hummingbird hovers at a cactus blossom, beating the air with thrumming wings. A morning dove coos. Spring rains rejuvenate the desert. I'm Michael Stein. To see some photos of all these birds, flap your way over to our website, LOE.org. on the final throes of winter. Stay tuned for more Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the saying goes, sharing is caring. And for a population of humpback whales in the Gulf of Maine, sharing a new hunting technique with each other is more than caring. Changing their hunting culture seems to have helped them survive and adapt to a prey shortage. A new study in Science Magazine explains what happened. Luke Rendell teaches biology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and is one of the study's authors. Luke Rendell, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, it's great to be here. So how do humpback whales normally go about finding their food? So before this new behavior came along, the standard technique was something called bubble feeding, which involves the animal locating some prey and diving down underneath it and blowing a cloud of bubbles around that shoal of prey. Now, for some, some reason, small fish don't like to swim through bubbles, whether it's because it actually is physically difficult for them to do it 
or because they perceive this big cloud of bubbles as like a big predator or, or something scary in the water. So when the whale blows these bubbles, it creates a kind of barrier to the fish, and this helps them gather the fish together in a nice tight shoal that they can then engulf with their very large mouths. So how is it that these humpbacks needed to find a new way to hunt? We're not exactly sure. You can imagine it's very difficult to observe, reliably see in the water what the whales are doing and what they're feeding on. But because we know from research fishing, so fishing boats that go out and sample how many fish there are of each species in the area, and the National Marine Fisheries Service in the United States does this on a regular basis in the Gulf of Maine, we know that herring, which had been a, a major prey for the humpback whales, crashed in the late 1970s. And then in the early 1980s, another species, the sand lance, went through a boom. So we think that the need to develop a new uh, or improved feeding technique was related to this kind of shift in prey. Please describe for me exactly what the whales did uh, to, for this new technique. Well, they kind of added something new onto what they were already doing before. So they would already do this bubble feeding, and then they added on a behavior that's called lobtailing. Lobtailing just means hitting the water with your tail. This is not new to humpbacks as a whole because they do it all the time in social interactions. What was new was that they stuck it on the start of their bubble feeding sequence. So instead of just diving and making bubbles, they would hit the water with their tail a few times and then dive and make bubbles and, and go through their normal hunting technique. We don't really know for sure what function that serves. We think maybe that it creates a kind of disturbed patch of water at the surface, which prevents the fish from swimming and jumping out of the way, for example. But uh, that is something we're not totally sure about. And now this feeding method has, uh, has spread among the whales. That's correct, yes. So from uh, one whale doing it in 1980, the current estimates are that somewhere between 35 and 40% of the population uh, now know about and do this behavior. And your paper says that this feeding method is spread among whales by observation. So I'm just wondering, how much of a new discovery is it that humpback whales learn from each other like this? Well, in terms of actual physical behaviors like this lobtail feeding, uh, then that has never been described before. What we do know, of course, obviously, is that humpbacks are very famous for their songs. In, in the 1970s, there was a craze of putting out CDs with humpback songs on them, and they're very striking and famous animal displays. And we know that they learn that song from each other because we've observed population songs changing very rapidly in ways that you can't explain in any other way than that they are learning the song from each other. So the idea that they learn some kind of behavior from each other is not new, but we had no idea that it would actually involved things like their feeding behavior as well as their song. So this is essentially a cultural change. Yeah, so it's culture in the sense that it is learned from uh, other individuals, right? Um, the pattern of spread that we uh, observed was much better explained if we took the social network into account than if we did not. So animals that hung out together a lot, if you hung out with an animal that knew the behavior already, you were much more likely to learn the behavior yourself. So we don't actually know for sure whether this lobtailing is functional in the way that I sort of speculated about earlier, or whether it is just an arbitrary thing, right? We just uh, wave our tails this way before we eat. In many respects, from the perspective of 
understanding it as a cultural behavior it doesn't really matter whether it's functional or not the interesting thing is that it is spreading through the population in the way that we've seen it it does so how extensive is the whale's sense of community uh, to what extent do they share knowledge and behavior widely do you think well, to really answer that, you'd have to be inside a whale's head yourself, right? Uh, but uh, what we can deduce from what we observe is that the animals have a very uh, clear sense of their identity and the identity of the group with which they are involved, right? So the humpbacks, each breeding population has its own song, and the animal can very easily know whether it's, you know, with its population, but just by listening to the songs that the males are singing for example. And, uh, you know, we also know that there are some long-term relationships. So year on year, certain pairs of females will often be seen together on the feeding grounds. So what can we learn about other creatures, and I include us humans in that, by studying this behavior in whales? I think we can, uh, we can potentially learn a lot about the evolutionary history of our species. People have been fascinated about the evolution of culture in humans for decades. Traditionally, they have focused on our closest living relatives, chimpanzees and other great apes, as well as uh, monkey species, all from the same kind of primate lineage. I think what this study does and a number of other studies that have been coming out recently on, on whales and dolphins is really question whether that approach is the best one whether we should just simply restrict ourselves to looking at our closest ancestors or whether we can't understand something more about the evolutionary processes that lead to things like culture by looking at completely unrelated lineages. I suppose if you study the whales long enough, you might find out all sorts of things. I mean, you might find that they switched their food not so much for scarcity but for flavor, you know? Yeah, we understand that there are some killer whales who eat fish and some killer whales that eat dolphins and they do not switch. The fish eaters keep eating fish and the dolphin eaters or the porpoise eaters or the seal eaters keep eating those animals uh, even though the salmon are swimming right by under their nose. Well, wait, you're telling me that some killer whales love red meat and others just won't go for it? Yeah, that's right. There are fish eaters and mammal eaters and they live in different groups and they have different call dialects and uh, they do not mix. Biologist Luke Randell of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland is one of the authors of a new study about whales and their culture in Science Magazine. Luke, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's been great. well underway in much of the country, but way up north in Vermont, winter is only now loosening its icy grip. And that means it's time for Little Joe's Pond, tucked between the towns of West Danville and Cabot, to step into the spotlight. As the thaw takes hold, Vermonters head to general stores throughout the state to buy tickets for the Joe's Pond Ice Out Contest. Living on Nurse Emmett Fitzgerald, Vermont-born and bred, has the story. All you have to do to win the Joe's Pond Ice Out Contest is guess the precise time that a flag attached to a cinder block resting in the middle of Joe's Pond in West Danville, Vermont, will fall through the melting ice. The Ice Out title goes to the best guess. Whoever comes closest, or usually it's right on, the exact minute. Jane Brown is the current co-chair of the Joe's Pond Association's Ice Out Committee. When the contest began in 1988, only a few hundred people took part. 
But she says the competition has grown. This year, we've sold almost 12,000 tickets. Tickets go for a dollar apiece. The organizers take out their expenses, then the pot is split between the Joe's Pond Association and the contest winner. This year, it's a decent chunk of change. It'll be just under $5,000 after the split. I grew up in Montpelier, about 30 miles away from Joe's Pond. As a kid, I saw ice out tickets for sale in local shops and wondered about the contest, so I decided to check it out. I met Jane at her house, and her husband Fred took me down to the pond. My role mainly is uh, to help my wife, and in addition to that, I'm the uh, webmaster for the Joe's Pond Association. He takes me to the shore where the dark ice stretches to the opposite bank. It's a balmy 65 degrees, but it's still frozen. The only open water is right at the edge, where a fountain shaped like an otter spits water into the pond. Fred points out the red flag sticking up from a cinder block about 100 yards out. Then we head back to the deck of a small house where the official ice-out clock is set up. Actually, this is a new clock this year also. It's a weatherproof clock. A series of wires connect the clock to a rope that runs all the way out to the flag. And you see the wires coming from the clock. Right. Down to the other deck and out to the flag. When the flag breaks through into the lake or floats away on a loose chunk of ice, the rope goes taut. When that connection down there is pulled, well, this clock will stop. So that will be the official ice-out time. The rules of the Joe's Pond ice-out have been in place since a man named Jules Chateau started the contest in 1988. Chateau and his friends would come out to the pond during the winter for beer and cards. Probably they had a little cabin fever, and so they just started saying, let's guess what time the ice will go out. It uh, spread from them, and pretty soon they started having tickets in the stores, and here we are today. The place that sells the most ice-out tickets today is the Hastings store in West Danville. A wooden sign on the front porch reads, ice-out tickets sold here in painted red letters. It's squeezed next to the Joe's Pond craft shop and doubles as the town's only post office. The Hastings store is the hub of this one street downtown. Hastings looks like what it is, an old-fashioned family business. It's been in my family since October 13, 1913. That's Jane Larrabee, formerly Jane Hastings. She says that her family has been tracking the ice for generations. Before the contest got going, her father and a friend of his would bet on whether the ice would go out before May 1st. And they'd bet a dollar, and they would tack that dollar to the ceiling right about there. Then whoever would win would let it ride till next year. So we had those two dollars stuck to the ceiling for years. Jane and her husband have sold over 1,000 ice-out tickets at the Hastings store this year. Most of these go to locals, but the Joe's Pond ice-out contest has begun to go global. I did sell a ticket one fall foliage, and in May I got a phone call, and I said, well, where are you calling from? And he said, South Africa. (laughs) So we're known, you know, far and wide. Jane shows me one of the tickets. It has the dates of the last three ice-outs on it, but that's all the help you're going to get. She says her customers have some unique ways of making predictions. It's birthdays, anniversaries, lucky numbers. Sometimes we have the dowsers come in and they'll douse with a pendulum over a calendar. You know, it's just one of those things, whatever floats their boat. These days, competitors have a new variable to contend with, global warming. Over the past few years, Vermont winters have been getting milder, and the ice-out times are creeping up the calendar. In 2010, the ice went out on the earliest date on record, 
April 5th. So that was the year they had, oh, three or four days of 80-degree weather. That's very unusual. In fact, my husband sold that ticket. He told the fellow that never, ever gone out that early. And the fellow said, well, it's just a donation then. I won $5,000, so. Ah, (laughs) But this winter has been cold, and Jane's hoping the ice will hold on till May. Each year, she buys one ticket. But I always pick May 2nd at 1251, because that's when my son was born. It hasn't won in 35 years, but then there's always this year. (laughs) There's usually only one ice out winner, although there can be ties. But the contest is good for the whole community. It brings Central Vermont a bit of publicity and gives neighbors something to chat about during the winter when they're picking up their mail at the Hastings store. And the other half of the money funds the 4th of July fireworks display. If you win the, the jackpot, fine, but if you don't, you still get to see the uh, fireworks and they're reflected off the pond, so you actually see them twice, which is wonderful. When the ice melts, the process begins all over again. Hastings never has to take the sign down because they start selling tickets for the following year right after the winner has been announced. Could I interest you in a ticket? For next year? Just as soon as the ice goes out, they print new ones. Well, next time I'm in Montpelier, I'll make a stop by Hastings store. You do that, and we'll be sure you get a nice fresh one. On April 24th, we got word that the clock had stopped at precisely 8.46 a.m. when the flag finally fell through the ice. The winner of the 2013 ice out is Gary Clark of Barrie, Vermont. I called him up. Congratulations, Gary. Oh, thank you very much. It's still in shock. Time to come down off the cloud and move on, I guess. How did you make your guess? What kind of, uh, what kind of methods did you use for your prediction? Uh, I've been playing the last few years, and this year I decided to splurge and bought 30 tickets. And I worked back from, say, May 1st, picking a time in each day. So that's about my scientific procedure. So you cast a wide net? Yes. Now, Gary, if you don't mind my asking, how much, uh, how much is the purse? Just under $5,000. And what are you going to do with the money? Uh, I'd probably donate some of it. I haven't quite sure. And my wife knows about it, so she's entitled to some of it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us, Gary. Oh, thank you very much. Huh. So Gary won $5,000. Maybe I will buy a ticket for next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald. On the next Living on Earth, Christiana Figueres, the UN Climate Negotiations Chief, says she's optimistic about finding a real solution to global warming. We don't have an option. We don't have a plan B because we don't have a planet B. We are going to solve this. Finding the way forward for global climate negotiations next time on Living on Earth. Produced by the World Media Foundation, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Alicia Zhuang, Hainat Khan, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. A special thanks this week to Ari Daniel Shapiro and Mind Open Media with support from the BP, the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com.
www.goforward.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.